Well, the word epiphany in Greek means to reveal. The season of epiphany begins on January 6th, the 12th day of Christmas, the feast of the epiphany, commemorating and celebrating the visitation of the wise men, who we call magi, the revelation or revealing of Jesus to the Gentiles. Ash Wednesday is the day that Epiphany ends. And because the date of Easter, which necessarily determines the date of Ash Wednesday, changes every year, being the first Sunday after the full moon that occurs on or after the spring equinox, unless the full moon falls on a Sunday, then Easter is on the next Sunday. It's a little bit complicated. It's a little, it's a little like determining where Passover is uh, based on the Hebrew calendar which has 29 or 30 days, and then every 19 years has an extra month added in, and it's complicated trying to figure all of that out. Thank goodness for the Gregorian calendar. Epiphany can last anywhere between six and nine Sundays. This year, the season of Epiphany is seven Sundays. Today, is the second Sunday of Epiphany, if you didn't check the front of your bulletin. And every year on the second Sunday, every single year, we read from the first chapter of the Gospel of John. This is because to reveal is the precise purpose for which the Apostle John, not John the Baptist, wrote his Gospel. He tells us plainly in chapter 20, verse 31, that I have written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And that purpose is obvious right from the start. And by the way, we are going to be looking at John chapter 1, so if you've got your Bible or device, you can turn to it. In the prologue of the gospel, verses uh, 1 through 18 of chapter 1, which we read on Christmas Eve and Christmas morning, John declares that Jesus to be the divine logos, the eternal word that created the universe, God himself incarnate and dwelling with us as one of us. Jesus didn't only become like man, he actually became truly and fully human. Like us in every sense, except our sin. Hebrews 2.17, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. And in Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And in the mystery, I, I talked about this last week, in the mystery of the hypostatic union, everything proper to humanity was united to the eternal Son of God. He became truly and fully human while remaining truly and fully God. And he became man, in the words of the Nicene Creed, for us and for our salvation. 
Jesus chose to become flesh and blood, to become incarnate, and in an act of pure mercy and grace, to offer himself as a sacrifice, to die on our behalf, because if things were truly just, it would be us. And it's to keep that ever before us that we are a people of the Eucharist. So after this incredible prologue, the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John, the remainder of the first chapter is delineated by a series of four days at the very beginning of Jesus's public ministry, starting in verse 19. Here's a quick summary of the events of those four days. Day one, verses 19 through 28, the priests, Levites, and Pharisees come out from Jerusalem to question John about his identity and his authority. Are you Messiah? No. Are you Elijah? No. A prophet? No. Just one crying in the wilderness. So if he's not one of these, then why is he baptizing people? Day two, verses 29 through 34. Jesus comes out to be baptized by John and receives the spirit from heaven. And of course, hear the voice of his father blessing him. And in that moment, John recognizes Jesus for who he is and proclaims him as both the son of God and the lamb of God. Day three verses 35 through 42. John the Baptist, standing with Andrew and another of the disciples, sees Jesus, points to him, and proclaims him again as the Lamb of God. Andrew and the other disciple accept Jesus' call to follow him. Simon also becomes a follower and is immediately renamed Rock, which, if you'll forgive the pun, is a pretty solid name. And on the fourth day, verses 43 through 51, Jesus goes with his new disciples to Galilee, recruits Philip and Nathaniel, and informs them they haven't seen anything yet. They're all about to see and experience so much greater things. So, game on. It's an incredibly productive four days, and the verses appointed for today cover the middle two bits of that sequence. The passage also tells us something important about the relationship between John the Baptist and Jesus, namely this, when the Son of God is revealed, as he was at his baptism, John's disciples are to follow John no more. Jesus must now increase, John must decrease. So the second half of the passage Steve read today, starting with verse 35, begins with John the Baptist and two of his disciples passing by Jesus when John declares for the second time in two days, behold, the Lamb of God. And as they should, John's two disciples turn from him and begin to follow Jesus. And when Jesus sees this, he simply turns and asks them just one amazingly insightful and straightforward question. American poet, painter, essayist, and playwright E.E. E. Cummings famously wrote, always the beautiful answer who asks the more beautiful question. 
I, I keep this quotation framed on my desk because it's something I want to never forget. In parenting, pastoring, coaching, friendships, and flight instructing, I have found this to be, if not always easy, true. Ask the more beautiful question, the question that sparks the imagination or, or gets to the heart of a matter at hand, and the beautiful answer inevitably comes. And as you might expect, Jesus was the master of the more beautiful question. And in this passage, when two of John's disciples turn from John and begin following Jesus, Jesus wheels around on them and asks them the question that's at the heart of why every person with agency does everything they do, or nearly so. It's why kids misbehave and, and why adults often make great sacrifices or don't. It's a question so basic, you might read this passage a hundred times and miss its significance, but it's also a question so profound that it's at the heart of Christian discipleship. What do you want? In the English Standard Version or the Eastern Shore Version, depending on what you choose to call it, the question is, what are you seeking? But it's what do you want? It's really such a simple sentence, just two words in Greek. And at first glance, it doesn't even seem like a difficult question at all. But if you stop to actually ponder Jesus's question, it's the biggest, most beautiful question of life. What do you want? In his exceptional 2016 book, You Are What You Love, philosopher and author Jamie Smith calls this the first, last, and most fundamental question of Christian discipleship. In the Gospel of John, it's the very first question that Jesus poses to those who would follow him. When these two would-be disciples begin to follow Jesus in verse 38, he stops, wheels around on them, and pointedly asks, what do you want? That is the question. What do you want is the question that's buried under almost every other question that Jesus asks each of us. Will you come and follow me is another version of what do you want, as is the fundamental question Jesus asked three times of his estranged denying disciple in John 21, Rock, do you love me? In fact, Jesus never encounters anyone who, would, who says they want to follow him and asks, what do you know? Or he doesn't also ask, what do you believe? Not once. Check it out. But he does ask, what do you want? This is the most incisive, piercing question Jesus can ask us precisely, and we cannot escape this. We are what we want. Our wants and longings and desires are at the core of our identity, even if we can't articulate them. They are the wellspring from which our actions and behaviors flow. Our wants come straight from our hearts. Our epicenter is humans. This is why King Solomon warns in Proverbs 4:23, above all else, above everything, guard your heart. 
because that is the wellspring of life. The overwhelmingly popular idea uh, today is that we are what we think. If we just think right, we will act right. This hit home for me in a very tangible way a couple of years ago. The straight line between thinking right and acting right was the topic of conversation in a men's group I was attending at the time, which I challenged with something like this. Isn't it more about what we love than what we think? I mean, how many of us ate french fries last week even though we know as an absolute certainty they're really, really bad for us? <coughs> and we could all stand to lose some weight. One of the guys in the, in the group countered, well, it says in the Bible, as a man thinks, so is he. And the whole group kind of harumphed their agreement. But that's not what Proverbs 23, 7 actually says. It says, as a man thinks, do you know the rest of this? In his heart, so is he. So it's actually about the heart. It's actually about what we love. And if this is true, and I believe it is, it means that discipleship is much more a matter of hungering and thirsting than of knowing and believing. To be a disciple is to be attentive to and intentional about what you love, what you hope, what you desire, and what you long for. Don't get me wrong, knowledge and belief matter greatly. In fact, they're kind of the other hand of this whole thing. But it's not primarily what we think or even what we believe. What we love is the most defining characteristic of who we are, what we truly want. Not just what we say we want or what we feel like we should want is the engine of our souls. The one thing that most deeply captivates our imaginations and stirs our affections. It's why we do nearly everything we do. And it has its roots in what we want. One way to think about how we might envision, uh, one way to think about it, this is how we might envision the good life, the life that we wish or desire to live. We might not be able to fully articulate it, but it's what our actions over time reveal about what it means to us to live life well. What kind of life do we dream of? What captures our imaginations? What's the picture of what we imagine as human flourishing? We want it, we crave it, we desire it. it. It most profoundly and ultimately affects how we invest our time, talent, and treasure. This is why our most fundamental orientation to the world is love. We're primarily led by our longings and directed by our desires. And scripture absolutely affirms this. Although it's corrupted, by the sin in us, I believe this is one clear evidence of God's design for humanity. Psalm 135.6 says, whatever the Lord desires, he does. In heaven and on earth and in the seas and all deeps. Psalm 115.3 says, our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he desires. God fundamentally does what he desires, and he has created us in his image to do what we desire. 
And even though he states it in the negative sense, the apostle James wrote in James 1, 13 through 15, let no one say he is tempted, when he is tempted, that I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by, with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own, what? Desires. That's right. Then, desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. As most of you know, Lauren and I have three adult sons. So it probably goes without saying to the other parents in the room that we have witnessed a lot of childhood, adolescent, and young adult dumb and dumberness over the past few decades. I don't know what else to call it. But ask your child why they did something they knew to be dangerous or wrong. And 99 times out of 100, I would bet you they will say what? I don't know. But the real answer is because I wanted to. Full stop. You yourself as an adult can't escape this. And neither can I. Look at your calendar. Look at your bank statement. Look at your hidden life, the part no one else sees. That's what you love. About 16 centuries before you or I were even a gleam in our father's eye, St. Augustine, a fourth century African bishop, I'm glad somebody got that, because that's what my dad used to say. I knew you before you were even a gleam in my eye. I didn't know what that meant, and then it was kind of gross. Anyway, about 16 centuries before you or I, St. Augustine, a fourth century African bishop and theologian, wrote something very similar. He said, my love is my weight. And wherever I am carried, my love has carried me there. The word for weight in Latin is gravitas. Our desires exert a constant and irresistible pull. It's like what we experience as gravity. My gravitas is my love, and wherever I go, love is carrying me. Augustine also said that everything has motion and direction. Everything moves based on its nature. A rock sinks in the ocean. Smoke rises in the sky. When oil is poured into water, it rises to the top. He observed that things are pulled in the direction of their nature, and they keep being pulled in that direction until they come to rest. And he said that when things are out of order, they're restless, and that when they are restored to order, they find rest. He believed that for the human soul, the direction, the pull, is its loves, the affections of the heart, what one desires most deeply. To have rightly ordered loves, then, brings a soul to rest and is the goal of discipleship. But a life of disordered loves is and will always be restless. 
We know that in our own lives when our loves get disordered. This is the idea behind the quotation we most often hear from St. Augustine. Our souls are restless until they find their rest in thee. A while back, uh, a friend recommended a website that asks people to post about their own search for gravitas in life. And here's how one person, her name is Elizabeth, describes her vision of what she believed the good life to be. My youngest child has gone off to college, triggering a seismic shift in my focus. My work life, I'm a nurse, remained consistent. My vast array of interests only expanded, but my purpose seemed to have evaporated. No longer the essential player I had been for 26 years in the lives of my four children, I found myself grasping for purpose like a spiritual asthmatic. I wrote an essay acknowledging that I felt like a high school senior being directed to what makes me happy, finding my passion, living out my dreams, yet I was at a complete and total loss to figure out what they are. I tried all sorts of things. I became a doula, a hospice volunteer, a reading volunteer, but all seemed empty endeavors lacking the the fulfillment that I was seeking. It was the most challenging time of my life. And she goes on and at the end of the post, she sums up her vision of the good life in this way. I have always wanted to be effortlessly kind. So her vision of the good life is one where kindness and generosity and love all come easily and without effort. And this discovery, this desire of the good life is now what drives her. It's her gravitas. It's what pulls her as she seeks meaning and purpose in her life. It's what she wants. And to all that find themselves interested in following Jesus, by the way, Patrick simply asked that question of someone yesterday in Sam's Club. Are you interested in following Jesus? Because they were having it. And she, to his shock, said yes. And he was able to lead her to Christ. Of course, he had to buy a phone as well, but uh, <laughs> to seal the deal. <laughs> he was just beaming when he came in this morning and told me that story. To all who find themselves interested in following Jesus, he asks us, this very question, what is your vision of the good life? Which is another way of asking, what do you want? That is the big, the beautiful question. To follow Jesus is to align our loves and longings with his, to want what God wants, to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after God and crave a world where he is all in all. It's the vision that's captured by the shorthand, the kingdom of God, and the goodness that flows from it. I, I will tell you that this last fall was for me and I think for Lauren, reformational. We became part of a small group uh, here at our church that was going through the book, The Other 
uh, half of church. It's a, it's a book really about how we engage our whole brain in discipleship. And what emerged from that group were hearts more and more centered around one love. And this was not just for Lauren and me, it was for the whole group around one love in becoming a people who eagerly and joyfully pursue the mostly omitted second half of the Great Commission to obey everything that Jesus commands evermore as an outflow of love and as a matter of habit. And we also came to understand that we are not designed to do this on our own. It requires building a community that's committed to and adept at building joy and in strengthening steadfast love and strong attachments in creating a strong group identity and even of holding one another accountable to that identity. For us, this was done not just by reading and applying a book, but by experience, by experiencing these things with each other, by exercising these things with each other, engaging the right brain and becoming more full-brained in the process. And I, I am so enthused by that. And I use that word enthused intentionally because you're all gonna have a chance to experience some of that four Sundays in this winter and spring. Steve and Rebecca are gonna be leading us through parts of the other half of church. And we're gonna have four Sundays where we will do morning prayer, a shorter service, and then have brunch together, and then have some teaching and experiential time and children's formation. We'll probably be done around noon that's our goal is to be done right at noon so it's not going to be a long commitment but you'll be getting those dates uh, later this week all of this to become a people that eagerly and joyfully pursue obeying everything that Jesus commanded evermore as an outflow of love and a matter of habit that's the aim now it'll have it'll have some nuance in identity just based on our group and who we are. But I do hope the goal of obeying everything that Jesus commands is the aim. And I hope that if Jesus were to stop and wheel around on me and pointedly ask the more beautiful question today, January 15th, 2023, as I believe he in fact is, that's what I would tell him. That's what I want. What do you want? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.